Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Scott. Welcome to Coffee and Books. If you are new here, welcome. We have a lot of new listeners. It's very exciting. Um, A couple things I wanted to talk about before we get into our latest book, which is called Lies My Teacher Told Me. Um, So first off, we just had a bunch of new listeners. So like I said, if you're new, this podcast, I like to review different types of coffee. If you have any suggestions, please feel free to email me. Um, My email will be in the link bio below. Um, If you would like to support me and my cause of reading more books and you'd like to hear more quality content, I appreciate any sharing you do. And if you want to support my Patreon, you can. If you just want to tell a friend about it, anything you do helps this podcast. Um, I am thoroughly enjoying this podcast. This is something I do for fun. Um, I'd like it to grow and be more successful, and uh, it has been doing that. So thank you again if you're a new listener. Um, and I just wanted to say also, this is pretty cool. This is really exciting. I got my first ever payment from Anchor. So you might have heard my advertisements about Anchor, the awesome podcast, you know, platform I use to you know, talk about things with the world, like such as this book today. Uh, I got my first ever payment from Anchor today. And I just want to say it's pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. Uh, Money is directly deposited into your bank account. So um, thank you again to Anchor and Stripe and all the other sponsors out there that kind of helped me. Um, again, if you're potentially listening and this is new to you, most of my podcasts don't start off this way. <laughs> so anyway, why don't we get into it? Um, the next book in our series is kind of long. It's not long as in physically big like the Thomas Jefferson book, but it's actually long because there's a lot of information to cover, and it's actually really cool, and that's why I want to talk about it today. As you know, I'm a history buff, and I love history, and I thought it was really important to note that, you know, the in this case, this book, which is called Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, um, is a book that dispels everything you might have learned in history class. History is the only sort of topic that we have to relearn later in life, usually because when we're in high school and you're studying social studies, a lot of the time that type of environment is typically misled or wrong or incorrect information. Um, Some of you might already know about this. For instance, Christopher Columbus uh, sailing in 1492 and coming to the United States is a popular sort of notion Uh, You know, like he visited the Americas and he was the first one to quote unquote discover the Americas. That was a perfect example of something that, you know, yes, he did in fact sail to the United States and, uh, you know, the Caribbean and uh, South America. But was he responsible for discovering the Americas? He was not, as we will soon find out. Okay, so that's the type of information his book dispels. It's written by a university professor who dispels, like I said, different types of rumors that uh, kids from high school have when they go into college. So, more students earn higher grades in history than math, science, or English. History professors in college routinely put down high school history courses. Textbooks are muddled by conflicting desires to promote inquiry and to indoctrinate blind patriotism. So this is where our first sort of link sort of happens to explaining why textbooks and history, in particular high schools, are the way they are. It's because they're indoctrinating patriotism, something that is very important 
and a discussion of perhaps today and many books in the future is free speech. Um, like I said, if you're learning about history generally, if you're learning in high school, it's to promote how awesome your country is. Um, and this could be anywhere in the world, but on our side of things here in the United States, you typically learn history from the side of the Americans being AKA the white settlers, which is not the only story. So moving forward, uh, courses in history rarely reach past 1960s. This might have changed since this book has come out, but most of the books that we have barely, barely, barely touch on the 1970s. But there's a lot of history that has happened since 1970s to sort of present, so we don't want to forget that part of history either, even if it's more modern history. So there are examples here of stuff I like that I want to talk about. Um, in the introduction, I talked about Helen Keller. Uh, Helen Keller, if you don't know, is a very famous person who was a radical socialist, something that's new information to me. And much of her adult life is not taught in schools. Uh, she graduated from college. You know, from Helen Keller, if you don't know, was famous for being a person who overcame a large amount of disabilities. I believe she was uh, deaf and blind, so she couldn't see... And she couldn't hear, so she had trouble communicating with people, and she was able to overcome this, and she was able to go around the country and give, you know, like, speeches and talk about important factors in her life. Uh, but a lot of history textbooks like to leave out the fact that even though she overcame all this, as she grew to be older in life, she became more of a socialist. And she even supported the communist Russia when the revolution happened. And uh, newspapers vilified her for having these political leanings, and she, of course, became radicalized when she learned that physical handicaps, such as blindness, are not always random. And they might be affecting people who are in a lower caste of society. You might have been blinded if you were a factory worker, for instance. And this is something she fought for, you know, people to, you know, have, you know, health care and just different types of things were affected by the fact that she was, you know, she did not want people to be afflicted with what she was afflicted with. Um, and then we also have another character that I mentioned in the introduction, Woodrow Wilson. I, can't, I can never say that. But Mr. Wilson was you know, a president of the United States. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mr. Wilson was the, one of the presidents during World War I. Uh, that's what he was perhaps best known for, leading the United States during its isolationist phase and eventually assisting in World War I. Uh, but he's also credited with the women's suffrage movement. But in reality, he was not sympathetic to really any of these causes. Um, he was actually a Southerner. Um, so let's kind of get started on him. Uh, in reality, he was not sympathetic, for instance, to women's suffrage. His wife often detested suffrage uh, candidates. Uh, he uh, Honestly, public pressure is the only reason why he changed. But he often had people who were in the women's suffrage movement publicly arrested Um and again, the only reason he changed his thoughts on why women should have the right to vote is because it was publicly unwise for him to do so. He sort of learned that political leanings were allowing women to vote, like it was leaning more towards that way. But under Wilson, uh, something that is not well known is that the United States in, intervened a lot, and I mean a lot, in Latin America more often than any other time in its history. Uh, for instance, something that is not well talked about in our history is that we were in Mexico twice and we invaded in the early 1900s during their revolutions. 
Uh, we were in Haiti in 1915. We were in the Dominican Republic in 1916. We were in Mexico in 1914 and 1916. We were in Cuba in 1917. And we were in Panama in 1918. And all these were done under U.S. intervention. Uh, something that I'm not super familiar with yet on all of those topics. So I'm just going to say that what you need to know is Wilson was inherently racist. He was a Southerner. He showed birth of a nation at the White House, which is unfortunate. Um, it is one of the most racist, well-known movies of all time. And of course, uh, like I said, his interventions in these Latin American countries continue to plague us to this day. Uh, you know, a lot of the reasons why South America was, can, was and continues to be unstable is because of these interventions for profit in the United States. Uh, so in 1917, Wilson's actually supported sending secret monetary aid to the white Russians, a.k.a. the kings that were fighting against the communists, and he authorized the naval blockade of the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, he had assistance from Britain, France, and the Japanese. And what is a little-known fact is, you know, during the World War One, so Russia was fighting on side of the Allies, so eventually we attacked our own ally, even though they had a revolution and want to be a different form of government, we eventually intervened. And there was a, basically a world war in Russia, something that is not talked about in, again, World War I history classes, is that the U.S. intervened in Russia. Um, and I just thought that was crazy, something that you don't know about. Uh, because Wilson, like I said, led the U.S. during World War I, most history textbooks tend to hero-worship him, and bad things were not mentioned. And this is a critical, critical part of history textbooks. Anyone who was basically leading a conflict, you know, we sort of hero worship. George Washington, we know all the good things about George Washington are mentioned, but typically none of the bad things. For instance, him owning slaves or trading Native Americans poorly are not mentioned that much, if at all, in history textbooks. Which is a shame because, you know, Washington, like Wilson, was a person. And there are things that they do that are good. But Washington, and just like the, you know, all the, all the other U.S. presidents have both good and bad, that should be talked about, and bring and you know those topics should be brought up in history classes. Okay, so next we have the apparent takeover in Haiti in 1915 forced the Haitian government to accept the preferred leader of the United States, and when Haiti did not declare war on Germany following World War One, after the U.S. did, the Haitian government was dissolved. Um, again, unfortunate that we treated other countries this way. Um, there are different reasons for this. Again, Haiti is primarily of black descendants, uh, descendants from slavery, descendants from when France and the U.S. attempted to colonize Haiti. So there's a lot in the English. There's a lot going on there. But basically, at the end of the day, Haiti was in the United States' sphere of influence, a.k.a. being close to the United States, and therefore the United States thought it could best pressure Haiti to follow its course of actions, or what's best in the interest of the U.S. and not necessarily Haiti. Uh, Wilson's racial policies were also motivated by his hatred. As a Southerner, he was the president of Princeton. He refused to admit you know, like people of African-American descent into Princeton, um, he tried to pass legislation that curtailed the rights of African Americans. He used his power as chief executive to segregate the federal government, something that wasn't necessarily done at that time yet. 
Um, you know, something that was a good example of this would be the Navy, which was not segregated prior to Wilson being in the administration. So that's just a little known fact there. Um, and then, of course, he used the excuse of anti-communism to surveil, uh, you know, black newspapers, organizations, and union leaders. But, of course, he's using the excuse of communism as a way to go and investigate these things. And, of course, I always thought this was something that you hear about in the 60s, you know, being the 1960s with the you know, FBI, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Uh, but, you know, like I said, we have a much older history that is not necessarily talked about. Okay, so, uh, so like I said, Wilson was primarily responsible for almost the U.S. becoming a police state. And that is where we're going to be touching off base there. We're going to move on now to another character of American history. Um, so like we said, we here worship people like Wilson, but we also have created mythological people in our history. For instance, Betsy Ross. Uh, so Betsy Ross was the person, if you don't know, who created supposedly the United States flag and the way it was designed during the colonial era. Um, however... This is actually a myth, something that surprised me, is that, you know, her descendants claim she did this and used it as a tourism. So in the 1800s, her descendants got together and decided that this would be a way to attract tourism to their town, is that they could claim that, you know, their descendant, Betsy Ross, created this flag. Um, again, this is hero-worshipping. They're worshipping someone, you know, who created, you know, the important symbol of American history when it was not necessarily created by her. Um, and so now we're going to go finally to chapter one. This is, like I said, all this prior information was just an introduction. And now we're going to really start investigating pieces of American history. So now we're going to talk about Christopher Columbus, finally. So this is, like I said, probably the most famous example of how textbooks, teachers often get this wrong. Uh, Columbus is often paid tribute as the first explorer who discovered the Americas, but in reality, he's one of many. So there were many false ideas that attributed Columbus to discovering America. For example, the Renaissance expanded on the concept of trade, the Crusaders increased the idea of trade, Europe needed spices, and the Turks refused to trade with them, so they tried to sail to India. So let's unpack everything I just said there. Uh, Columbus was, like I said, one of many explorers. Now, why did Europe have explorers? More particularly, why did countries like Spain, England, France, why did these countries need explorers to go discover new routes? Well, because they were at war. Why were they at war? Well, they were at war with the Turks because they're Muslim, and they're like, you know, Turks were Muslim, they were Christian, they did not necessarily see a trade route anymore to India, which is where they wanted to go to get their spices, which are very valuable and profitable. So Columbus was trying to sail initially to India to get said profits. However, he discovered, quote-unquote, discovered the, you know, the Americas, in which case a new type of development occurred. Uh, so one of the most significant factors left out is that there was an arms race in European countries leading to the countries being dominated, and this included the Americas. Uh, so an arms race, you know, essentially the way we went from uh, medieval times to the Renaissance times, basically there was an arms buildup in all European countries. And this is what led to, uh, eventually, colonization and being dominant in other parts of the globe. 
reasons why countries like England wanted to dominate was so that they could have the power of world domination. Not saying necessarily they wanted to control everything. I'm just saying that the fact that they wanted to control different and more power, more money, more wealth, they wanted that so they would have more influence over other countries. And that's basically what happened. There was an arms buildup, and the Europeans set sail and eventually took over land in the United States and South America and Canada, uh, pretty much all over the globe. And uh, uh, places like, for instance, the Philippines are you know, not mentioned, but places such as the Philippines were, um, you know, like colonized by the Spanish. So, anyway, continuing forward, in the years before Columbus, Europe expanded its social technology. So, things like the Magna Carta, or bureaucracy, allowed merchants and rulers to lead faraway empires. So, back in the day, when you had a medieval empire, you had typically a king who was seen as, you know, divine and therefore divine rule, and the king had to only rule his kingdom. But as bureaucracy sort of expanded, aka government got bigger, it did allow governments, aka, for instance, European powers, to expand their empires into farther and farther away. They did not necessarily have to be there to extend their colonial rule. Um... I used the Magna Carta as an example as the expanding social technology, as this was the basis for a lot of the United States. All right. Bookkeeping, also based on the decimal system, was picked up. So something that is not talked about a lot in history is that a lot of the science and technology that led to uh, Europe dominating the rest of the world came from other cultures cultures in Asia and Africa and the, you know, North America and South America eventually made their way into Europe. Europe took these ideas and used it to build stronger, better armies, better ships, better anything. And so a great example of this is the decimal system, which was picked up by and from Arabs or Muslims in the Middle East and in Africa and in Asia. Uh, This information would eventually, like I said, change the way we view math science. Um, The printing press is another example of a social uh, technology that developed. Um, So another factor that helped promote Columbus was the fact that there was a printing press. Prior to Columbus sailing the ocean and prior to the printing press being developed, there was no way for people to hear the news that someone had gone halfway across the world. So a big factor in Europe was when Columbus came back is that that information was easily translatable and printed and sent to many, many, many different people very quickly. Okay, so, as we said, books like to downplay that Christopher Columbus was in search of gold and plunder. I like to say he was doing it to discover a new trade route to, for instance, India, where he was trying to seek a profit. But it wasn't just necessarily this. This has also been romanticized to say once he discovered the Americas, He realized the potential, and he came back. And yes, he did realize the potential, but it's not because, oh, I see this as a a great place to live and develop. It was more, I'm looking for gold and plunder, which is basically what he did. Uh, Europe's readiness to discover a new continent was made possible by postalization. So one method that led to the Americas being more and more important was that it challenged the beliefs and philosophies 
of Christians in Europe. Before, um, you know, before, I guess I should say, Protestant Reformation, Europe was predominantly Catholic, which basically has a viewpoint that was very different from Protestant Reformation. But essentially, what led to the challenging beliefs of Christians was that there was an entire group of people halfway across the world who had not heard of you know, Christ. As a result of this, many people, specifically Western Europeans, thought it was in their best interest to go to uh, the Americas and convert those people to Christianity. And like I said, these ideas would eventually make their way back to Europe from the natives. There was a cross-cultural exchange, and ideas from North America eventually made its way into the subconsciousness of Europe, which changed the religions. Okay, so, like I said, part of the reason Europe's readiness to discover a new place, a new continent, was because it wanted to proselytize. Okay, Europe has also recently, like I said, discovered colonialism as a way to capitalize on wealth. Uh, before this, you know, countries just saw, you know, people as the way of making its money. It didn't realize that if you had colonial empires, that that was a way of making money, but that would eventually change. Uh, Spain and Portugal were the first places to sort of do this. And once people saw the wealth from the New World go into um, the Old World, a.k.a. Spain, via slave trade and finding gold, uh, many European powers were quickly discovering the only way to compete was to also do the same thing. All right. New and deadly forms of diseases had altered the course of history and killed many Native Americans since the age of Vikings and settlers. A very common misconception here in the United States uh, is that, like I said, the Europeans' first contact came from, like I said, Christopher Columbus, when in fact, in reality, there's been a lot of hypotheses about many different groups of people making it to uh, you know, the North America and South America before. Um, a great example of this would be the Vikings. The Vikings, aka people that were very, very different from most European settlers, even though they were themselves European in origin, the Vikings would make their way to Greenland and Iceland and to other parts of the North and eventually, in theory, sail into Canada and go down to Cape Cod. And while there's some evidence to suggest this, it's hard to say whether or not the Vikings actually made any successful colonies or whether or not you can quote-unquote say that they were in contact with natives. Um, but there are other groups, for instance, the ancient Phoenicians and ancient Egyptians that sailed as far as Ireland and reached as far as also the Azores Islands and traded with the aboriginal people of the Canary Islands. Um, you know, a great example of this is that they sailed around Africa in 600 BC. Um, the Prince Henry the Navigator is often given the credit for being the first person to go around the Cape of Good Hope, but it was actually with the knowledge of the ancients that led to this discovery. Uh, so, in other words, there are many people, many different groups that have been credited with giving that power to the white Europeans, but essentially... All you need to know is that there were ancients, aka Japanese, uh, people who were uh, of, from China, people from Europe, people from Africa that led to many different discoveries potentially before 
European colonialism took into effect. Okay, not many textbooks credit, for instance, Muslims who preserved Greek culture and combined it with ideas from India, China, and Africa. These ideas eventually, like I said, passed into Spain and Portugal, but it does not fit the narrative of European domination, so that's often why it's supposedly excluded from textbooks, which is very true. Spain and Portugal, on a part of the world, aka near the equator, where places such as the Mediterranean share you know, pretty close geopolitical boundaries with, you know, Africa. Places like Africa were primarily Muslim. And, uh, of course, these Muslims, like I said, initially preserved Greek culture and math. Something that is not well known is that they had taken these ideas from India, China, and Africa, and eventually those ideas came into Spain and Portugal to help them um, but again, this doesn't fit the narrative that European powers were completely dominant on their own, and therefore it's not mentioned in textbooks. Um, like I said, there's evidence before 1492 that people in the Americas had been previously discovered. So, initially it's thought that between 70,000 to 12,000 BC, E, it is believed that people from Siberia went on to Alaska. The survivors would eventually populate the Americas. But it is also possible between 6,000 BC to 1500 BC that is, there's evidence that indicates Indonesia visited South America. Uh, so how did people do this? Boats. Um, even though there's not a whole lot of evidence, there is similarities between the societies that show how much they had in common. For example, blowguns and papermaking was something that was discovered that was very similar. In 5000 BC, Japan is thought to have been to Ecuador. They had different poetry styles and fishing styles. Again, evidence for this is pretty low, but there's still a possibility of that existing. Between 10,000 BC to 600 BC, there is high evidence that people from Siberia did make it from uh, Siberia into Canada and eventually down to New Mexico. For instance, Navajos and Crees resemble each other and differ from other Native Americans. Um, 1000 BC, there's even a Chinese legend about contact with the Americas. Again, the possibility is pretty low for evidence. Um, between 1000 BC to 300 um, uh, current era, there is an Afro-Phoenician contact center in America. Moderate evidence. Likeness in sculpture and ceramics. A great example I like to give is the pyramids. Um, between, you know, if you go to Central America, the pyramids that existed in uh, Mexico, for instance, uh, you'd, are they're not similar or dissimilar to those pyramids that are in Egypt. Although they're built in different styles, it's pretty interesting how pyramids are all along that same sort of level, um, you know, near the equator. Okay, so between 1000 BC, well, I was already said that one. Between 500, on 500 BCE, Celtic Britain, there's evidence, although low evidence, that they possibly visited New England. Megalus and similarly, similarly, similarly in script language. Again, the evidence is low. In 600 current era, uh, Ireland to Newfoundland or West Indies. Again, low evidence, but there is a legend written by St. Bernardin 
sorry, St. Brendan, written in 800, 850 CE, that was confirmed by Norse sagas, that perhaps, perhaps suggests that the Irish should make it to Newfoundland, Newfoundland or the West Indies. Between 1000 to 1350 CE, Greenland and Iceland and to, to Nova Scotia and possibly Cape Cod further south. There is high evidence and oral sagas confirmed by archaeology suggesting that uh, Irish, um, or not Irish, that the Vikings made it to Greenland and colonized it, and they also were in Iceland. And like I said, they most likely made it to Canada and even possibly further south down to Cape Cod. Uh, between 1304 to 1424 CE, there was Polynesia to Chile. There's moderate evidence, and they had similar books. And eventually we get to 1311 to 1460, perhaps the most interesting, uh, West Africa to Haiti, Panama, and possibly Brazil. Uh, Portuguese sources credit this. Um, if so, it may be lost to history, but uh, again... Africa being one of the first places to be in the Americas before Columbus would have been very mind-blowing and very mind-changing. Uh, also, fun fact, the Norse colony in Greenland lasted 500 years before it dissolved, uh, which is currently longer than the entire U.S. government. All right. If the Egyptians and Africans did visit, this could explain, like I said, a large amount of pyramids and statues that have been found in North and South America. Venetian circumnavigation didn't lead to any new trade routes or national alliances because they were already trading with India. So like I said, the European powers initially sought a trade route to India because they could not get through because they were at war with the Muslims, a.k.a. the Turks, who controlled the uh, spice routes. So, as a result, uh, this is what led to supposedly the Europeans sailing and navigating a new way around the globe. However, like we said, we could credit Venetian navigation as possibly being one of the people in the, you know, you, you know, the North America or South American, or AKA the Americas. Uh, but this trade routes didn't lead to anything significant. There were no national alliances that were made. Um, as a result, that's partly why this was lost to time. You know, there wasn't as great of an impact as that was created by this as it was with the European powers. All right. So we do not have evidence of what Columbus even looked like or where he was really from. Some say that he was Italian, Jewish, and he was a convert. The idea that Columbus, uh, his crew, believed the world was really flat and threatened to mutiny was false. Uh, something that many textbooks mention is that Columbus was sailing and almost to the uh, North American continent when his uh, crew threatened to mutiny because they did not actually believe they were ever going to see land. And there are many false rumors that spread that Columbus's crew specifically believed that the world was flat, but... As most people know now, sailors believed back then that the world had to be round because they were navigators. So this mutiny was you know, something that should be downplayed because it wasn't really the same if it was in fact at all a mutiny. Um, the Pilgrims and Puritans also sold Native Americans. Now we're going to get into chapter 2, the Pilgrims and Puritans. Uh, primarily, for those of you who don't know, 
uh, pilgrims have been created uh, credited with sort of the foundational myth of where a lot of our ideas and beliefs come from about what uh, people should be like, what we should be thankful for. Um, the best way to explain it is the pilgrims were considered whole and pure and you know they were seeking religious freedom and they're what America is all about and that's why we celebrate Thanksgiving and the ideas of Thanksgiving still you know resonate with us today but a lot of the ideas of behind Thanksgiving were actually created much later but it, it is the pilgrims that are created with sort of founding the initial character that would lead to the United States' development. But the truth is, is that the pilgrims and other groups like the Puritans, and you could even argue other religious groups, were not necessarily as good as they made themselves out to be. Um, primarily because, like I said, they also dealt with the slave trade. They also dealt with Native Americans cruelly. Even though they're pictured to have sat down and eaten meals with Native Americans, they did not necessarily view Natives as equals. The natives actually died really quickly because of the contact with pilgrims. Uh, pretty much diseases like smallpox is what killed a lot of natives so fast. So as a result, African slaves had to be imported. And that is eventually why places such as Haiti had slave rebellions. Um, a little known common fact is that during these rebellions, often Af Africans and people such as Native Americans would join together in forces to fight back against the European colonists. Um, many factors contributed to European power. Uh, before Columbus, people thought of themselves as all different. If you were from a different country, that is the country you identified with. But after the discovery of America, this is what threatened the status quo. You were considered European. If you were considered European, you were considered white. Um, as a result of this, this is, even though, uh, though it, it, everything changed based on Columbus to, coming to the Americas, that's initially where the idea of hierarchy came from. Although slavery had existed for thousands of years, it was really set into motion when people such as Columbus came to the Americas, and they could say that this group of people are beneath me because they are different Again, this was cognitive dissonance, dissonance, and that's what led to Columbus justifying his actions. Uh, but it's not just Columbus. It's a lot of other European settlers, such as the pilgrims, who thought the same way. Uh, like I said, food and disease was equally traded between the Americas and in Europe. But eventually diseases would make, and food, like I said, would make its way back to places in Europe. But things such as the potato and corn would contribute heavily to places in Northern Europe expanding. Before the discovery, for instance, of the potato, uh, places in the south near the Mediterranean was where the majority of peoples had life and power. And there were many settlers who would eventually move their way north. But with the with the potato crop coming to the north, this is what greatly expanded the population. Um, so it did show that that was possible. All right, so what eventually happened, though, as another side effect of America's being incorporated into European powers, was that the power that Africa had, such as gold, aka, for instance, the Gold Coast, was devalued which meant the only way 
places in Africa had any power was the slave trade. Um, so that's also another side effect, unfortunately, of the Americas and European discovery. As we said, pilgrims were not necessarily friends with the Native Americans. In all likelihood, though, European germs are what defeated the natives and killed about 96% of the population because they did not have immunity. The few natives that remained allied themselves with the pilgrims, however, in a power struggle. So what can we unpack here? I can't talk today. So after the contact, initially, between Europeans and Americans, the natives in America did not have the same resistance to germs that the Europeans had. Europeans had survived plagues such as smallpox, the bubonic plague, etc. And unfortunately, the natives in America did not have the same resistance. And as a result of this, many, 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 many people, entire villages, everything was just wiped out on a level we cannot even imagine today. And as a result of this, the few survivors had to join with European powers just so that they could survive. And oftentimes this is something is not talked about in Thanksgiving. Um, you had natives such as Squanto who helped the pilgrims survive, but in reality it was a mutual way for both of them to survive, as Squanto's village was destroyed by the plague. Okay, many rumors, for instance, circulated about the Mayflower. Did they sail to Cape Cod on purpose? Where were they going? Were they trying to go to Virginia? Was it a hijacking by the pilgrims? A little-known fact about the Mayflower is that it was not all pilgrims on board. Pilgrims were only one group of people, but it is believed, you know, like to this day, that there are many rumors about why the pilgrims eventually, the Mayflower, sailed to Cape Cod. Uh, Cape Cod was in the middle of winter is pretty cold, and as a result, there would not be a normal reason to go there. Um, so some believe that this was done on purpose so that the pilgrims could have their own place to, to live and colonize. And some people believe they were initially trying to head to Virginia, and they missed their chance to go to Virginia, even though they could have easily gone south and discovered Virginia, but maybe they just didn't know where it was at. Uh, again, there's also the rumor that this was a possible hijacking by the pilgrims to go to Cape Cod on purpose. Um, but perhaps we will never know. Uh, as I said, the Squanto helped and other natives helped the pilgrims survive just because of basic survival for both groups. Uh, pilgrims often did not know how to farm or did not know how to farm and cultivate the land very well. It was with the natives' assistance that they were able to successfully cultivate the land. Um, okay, the Mayflower pilgrims were seeking profit and not just religious freedom. Often we are accredited the Mayflower pilgrims as seeking religious tolerance and seeking freedom, but in reality is they were also, just like any normal person, trying to make profit in this way of life. And often they used enslaved people. But they often were not just doing this, they were also grave robbers, thieves, and often took from the Native American villages that were destroyed by plague. Um, eventually, we have other rumors that abounded, such as Ponce de Leon, who did not go to Florida, initially seeking the Fountain of Youth. Uh, one popular rumor is that Ponce de Leon, a discoverer or explorer, was seeking gold and slaves for Spain, even though 
eventually the rumors of him searching for the fountain of youth developed, it was actually him seeking profit. Natives eventually captured other natives, and a slave trade was part of the United States, and it was a big part of its history as well. Um, something that is less talked about is that natives often fought against other natives in a lot of wars, including many wars up until the Civil War and possibly 1890 with the dissolution of the natives as having their own country. Eventually, Native Americans fought other Native Americans, and sometimes this was for profit, sometimes it was not for profit. Sometimes it was just for them trying to align themselves to get better land rights or being on the side of one group over another. Um, for example, the Iroquois Confederation aligned themselves with the British during the uh, American Revolution. Um, oftentimes, the British paid Native Americans to fight against the uh, colonial subjects. Um, but eventually, Natives would fight against other Natives, and after the War of 1812, essentially, uh, Britain and other places around the world, other European powers, stopped supporting Natives as a way of fighting against a proxy war against the United States. And after the War of 1812, the War with natives eventually became sort of a cleaning up mess, um, unfortunately. And as a result, many natives were mistreated. And, uh, you know, this was, of course, caused by the Trail of Tears and other such things, wounded knee, many, many other instances of the U.S. treating natives very badly in the 1800s. But after the loss of European support, natives really could not challenge the Americas either in the United States, Canada, or in the southern countries, uh, you know, Mexico, etc. All right. And then lastly, the most important point for the final chapter is that the Native Americans were responsible for partly influencing the United States democracy. It was people such as Benjamin Franklin who observed the Natives and observed their confederacies and how they formed and how they communicated and it was very similar to a democracy. Of course, many European powers at the time were headed by kings and queens, and as a result, the monarchies were shown to be of less you know, political value for the average ordinary citizen. It was people such as Benjamin Franklin who used this example by the natives as a way to create equality in the United States. Part of the Declaration of Independence is based on the fact that natives have their own confederation and their own democracies, uh, something that is often left out of history textbooks. Like I said, I'm not trying to say that all the European powers are bad, but we have to talk about how the European powers viewed themselves and how they viewed other countries, and a big part of this book is exposing the fact that many European powers and just unfortunately wanted to dominate the world and their culture, their society, whether it be Spain, whether it be France, whether it be England, whether it be anyone, they did this because they wanted to control as much wealth as possible and often exploit people. And that is where we're at right now. We'll continue next chapter with the invention of, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the, how racism is often ignored in U.S. history books and we'll eventually cover more modern examples in history as well. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This is, again, Coffee and Books. Uh, please don't forget to share this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening.